Take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Hey! Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokers and tokets and non-token lovers of liberty. It is Wednesday, April 20th, 2016, and it's got to be 420 somewhere in the world. Hell, it's got to be 420 everywhere in the world. Uh, except the United Kingdom. There, it's 24. But I digress. It's 420. What a beautiful day. I hope you're having a great 420 celebration. I'm still here at the United Nations. I'm currently parked in the United Nations cafeteria taking a break between the morning and the afternoon sessions at the United Nations General Assembly Special Sessions on International Drug Control Policy. And today I sat in on a roundtable discussion featuring many of the countries around the world, some of them very diehard, strict prohibitionist countries like Indonesia or Nigeria, other countries like Israel that have moved forward, Sweden that have some other policies. We'll get to hear from all of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, coming up on today's special 420 edition of the Russ Belleville Show. Since I'm here at the UN, I can't do the show live. This is pre-recorded, and uh, I'm going to bring you the highlights from some of the countries that uh, spoke at this roundtable. I've also got some highlights of some of the other events that have been taking place around New York City, interviews with some of the great activist leaders out here. Last night, I was able to attend the Museum of Drug Policy, where Melissa Harris-Perry, formerly of MSNBC, filmed her first ever Nerdland Forever podcast, independently, that is, from MSNBC, her first ever podcast at the museum speaking about the war on drugs. It was a two-hour show. We'll give you a couple of highlight clips from that as well. And then coming up in Hour 2, Toker Talk Radio, we've got that second half of that uh, policy forum that took place at New York University on Sunday. Mark Kleiman and Botech sponsored this, and it was about treating marijuana as a temptation good. A temptation good, which is not the temptations who are good. But no, we're talking about treating marijuana as if it were alcohol, tobacco, pornography, prostitution, or gambling. And, of course, the only difference is that none of those things have medical benefits, do they? That's all coming up today on the Russ Belville Show, your special 420 edition here from New York City. Later on in the day, I will be traipsing around New York, finding other 420 events to bring you. We'll give you the highlights for those on tomorrow's show. Thanks for your support. Thanks for your well wishes. Thanks for your advice and commentary. Appreciate all the fans of Cannabis Radio and the Russ Belville Show for getting me here. Uh, This has been the culmination of 10 years worth of activism, and I'm really excited to be here at the international level. All right, we're going to take a break, pay some bills, and when we come back, highlights from the United Nations Roundtable on combating international drug problems. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com.
When you are starting up a medical cannabis business, you want a fired-up lawyer who understands the needs of cannabis consumers. The Law Office of Lauren Vasquez is your fired-up lawyer for the cannabis industry. Visit her website, fireduplawyer.com, or call 1-855-MMJ-LAWS for more information. That's 855-665-5297 for Lauren Vasquez, your fired-up lawyer, or email fireduplawyer at gmail.com. Educator, author, and advocate, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. And I'm here to clear up the myths about cannabis and burn them away with science. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Dr. Kevin Hill. You can't ignore the fact that, like alcohol, most people who use don't have a problem. So I think that you need to think about policy in that way while educating people properly about marijuana. I think that's the way to go. Burning Issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. Activism begins with ACT. The Rush Belleville Show features the stories of hardworking grassroots activists working for an end to prohibition in today's activist agenda. Welcome back, everyone. Today for our activist agenda, we are concentrating on the United Nations General Assembly special session here in New York City, where the international delegates are discussing the war on drugs and what should be done about that, if anything. Today I was sitting in on a roundtable discussion amongst many of the member nations about the impact of organized crime and other criminal elements, including terrorism, as they are involved with this war on drugs. Another subject that was brought up repeatedly in this roundtable was what they called the scourge of NPS, New Psychotropic Substances, or something we here in America call designer drugs. There were 20 or more delegates that spoke at this event. We're going to bring you some highlights of some of the best speeches, or worst speeches, depending on your point of view. Here's my favorite. This is the delegate from Sweden, probably the only person I've heard speak at the United Nations this entire two days who's actually smoked marijuana. Enjoy. Thank you for letting me speak here today. <clears throat> I will uh, tell you a short story of a little boy. He was born in the 16th town in Sweden, grew up in a poor family with his father and who drank too much. There was some violence in the family, and the boy started drinking alcohol with his father when he was 10 years. He started growing marijuana when he was 12 and smoked hashes when he was 13 years. He learned as a child that he should not talk too much about what's happening in the family because we stick together. 
He quit smoking cannabis at 18 when he tried amphetamine at the first time, which got him hooked on, uh, hooked from the start because he made him calm and focused. At the same time, of, of his friends came up with the idea of buying larger quantity of hashes, sell to other friends, and make money enough to his own to drive for his drug of choice. Pretty soon he was pushing, pu pushing drugs regularly because his circle of friends just grew bigger and bigger. Not talk, talking too much about himself and what he was up to was a big help from him to dealing drugs. We stick together. <clears throat> came to include his friends. The group saw the rest of society as a threat to what they were doing. Society was the enemy and not the drugs and the crime. Instead, drugs and, uh, drug use and drug dealing became the normal way of life of the young man. Deep inside, he knew, as probably most of his friends, that his way of life was wrong. But because they never talked about it, they never saw the way out, also nobody offered them any help. So the feeling of being hunted was always there. The little boy was me. When I came out from the prison in 1998, after being sentenced for half, four and a half years in prison for serious drug crime and weapon offense, I decided to take different route in my life. At the same time, I started motivating other former addicts and criminals who wanted to change their life. I built and working for a popular movement with former criminal and drug abusers, which is present now in many places in Europe. After about 10 years, we built a new movement in around 30 cities in Sweden, and this is the organization which I work with today, Excons. Excons is an organization of former addicts and criminals. It's a cost-efficient alternative to other op options for the society to invest in. As a former addict and criminal, I was involved in running and building up two of Europe's largest crime drug prevention organizations. Unfortunately, there were no state resources to support our work. Although inmates in the Swedish prison decreased by about 8%, and we were one of the factors contributing to it. We were forced to scale down our operations and are now looking into ways to expand again. One option we were looking at is a social enterprises. The system are currently not built to support people to quit using drugs and criminal activities. Instead, resources are put on use when they continue to be criminals and drug addicts. We support the industry that thrives of people with problems. More resources are needed to support initiatives which help people reform their addiction and criminal behaviors. Tougher penalties against drug abusers do not, do not help people. It only helps the market to thrive with higher prices. We must not forget that one day the drug addict can be yourself, your child, any of your friends and co-workers on their children, or the children, or someone else close to you. So why not do the things that work and help prevent that? In all this year, I have been addicted or a criminal or after I stopped. I didn't know what member states were doing about this. But now, for the first time, I understand a bit more. And I'm not the only former addict criminal who does not know the work being done on this level. I'm very sorry to say it, but the world and the member states will fail if they don't support social movements or organizations in the world working on crime and drug prevention. 
to strengthen the people and organization who themselves has own experience in drugs and crime or those who work closely with people who are and have been in substance abuse and crime but change or want to change the life can make the fight against organized crime and drug abuse more effective on several levels. I was born and raised in Sweden and at very early age we were taught that with the right support we can solve our problem ourselves. More resources are needed to support work such as popular movements involving large segments of the population, which has proven to be effective in preventing drug use and crime. And I have some points to tell. I urge the United Nations and the countries in the world who are serious about fighting drugs and crime to actively support the individuals and organizations, including NGOs, to strengthen networks that help people who come out from prison or treatment or those that are in alternative program to prison. Number two, I call upon member states of UN to use their citizens as a resource to offer support that can change their life instead of seeing them as a lifelong problem. Deep down in everyone looks for a life without drugs and crime, but help and support are needed and abuse cannot be punished away. And everybody wants to be somebody and even maybe a hero for his nation. As citizens and taxpayers in the member states, we want to focus on what works. When you come home to implement what you are decide on here, use us criminals and former addicts and others as a resource for a better society and for prevention. Number three, I urge member states to remove bureaucracy for business that are working for social betterment in the area of drugs and crime and put money on long-term solutions for these activities and not just short-term projects. Four, I urge member, member states to condemn the death penalty because it's a primitive behavior in a modern world. Thank you. The Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com. With over six years of experience in the industry, New Era CPAs is one of the nation's leading cannabis accounting firms, helping hundreds of growers, dispensaries, and ancillary companies with their tax, legal, and business strategies. New Era CPAs offices cover the West Coast from Seattle to San Diego, and their skilled team is always available to help you take your business to the next level. Visit NewEraCPAs.com for more info and set up a consultation. Welcome to the New Era. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Thank you. 
Reforming America's Marijuana Prohibition Laws takes education, lobbying, and voting. From Washington, D.C. to your state capitol to your city hall, marijuana law reform involves all levels of civic life. Learn how you can make your impact with elected officials as we take a look at our government at work. We continue our show with government at work here at the United Nations. We now hear from the delegate from Nigeria. Thank you. Thank you, Co-Chair. Thank you for giving me the floor. Taking into account the alarming increase of cannabis cultivation in West African sub-region, especially in Nigeria, we have come apprehensive about the move for legalization of cannabis by some member countries. Nigeria stands and frowns against any attempt to legalize cannabis, as this will weaken and impede government's efforts to dismantle criminal criminal networks while increasing transnational organized crimes and other emerging forms of crime to flourish. The cultivation and trafficking of cannabis remains a challenge in Nigeria, and the emerging trends of warehousing cannabis in rural communities across the country continues to pose a daunting challenge in addressing the cultivation problem. The significant seizures of cannabis made in 2015 of over 2,000 hectares as a result of the strengthening partnership of the drug law enforcement agencies with local communities has improved our collaboration efforts. This has increased our nation's resolve to continue to adopt measures to sustain our drive on alternative development programs. It is our sincere, it is our sincere, sorry, sorry, excuse me, sorry, my notes are going over. It is our sincere hope that this, that this special session will be recorded in history as a period when the international community will rise up to its responsibilities in this regard by adopting effective strategies to achieve our collective goals. The discovery of the Levitt Methamphetamine Lab in Nigeria shows a new sophisticated trend in place to avoid law enforcement and monitoring officers. Criminal networks now use Benz, Ahadhead, and other nitrothene that are precursors to the precursors to avoid detection, as these chemicals are not under international surveillance. We acknowledge the efforts of member states in collaboration as regards the fight against the version of precursors as illicit use. It is important to urge member states, as a family of nations and in the interest of global peace, that we must awaken to our collective responsibility to beep off our international monitoring. This calls for an enactment of effective and sustainable strategies while noting the principle of sovereignty and respect for member states. We need to take cognizance of this emerging trend to find common ground to devise and enact effective control strategies in addition to strengthening our borders to combat this code. Nigeria believes that there is a need for strict adherence to international checks on the quantities of permits imports leaving member states. This is to avoid over-importation that fuels illicit manufacturing. In this regard, Nigeria will continue to participate in all operations and in initiatives of the INCB. Finally, as the world grows in knowledge and prosperity, so must humankind grow in maturity and wisdom. Care and compassion for our fellow human beings must inform all our actions. We must take appropriate measures to prevent illicit cultivation and eradicate illicit plant cultivation containing narcotic and psychotropic substances. In line with the principles of common and shared responsibility, there is a need for continuous strengthening of cooperation through information sharing and capacity building of law enforcement officers. In this regard, we continue to appreciate the technical support, capacity building, 
and the provision of logistics from international partners, especially the UNODC, to secure our borders. This has gone a long way in enacting measures for addressing the challenges of illicit drug supply. Thank you. Boot to the head. soon to a city near you cannabis finance boot camp get all your cannabis accounting legal and compliance questions answered by their knowledgeable panel of industry experts who want to help your cannabis business boom whether you're a grower dispensary operator or a newcomer to the field your cannabis business needs cannabis finance boot camp for information on upcoming events visit cannabisfinancebootcamp.com Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Reforming America's marijuana prohibition laws takes education, lobbying, and voting. From Washington, D.C. to your state capitol to your city hall, marijuana law reform involves all levels of civic life. Learn how you can make your impact with elected officials as we take a look at our government at work. We now continue your government at work with the delegate from Pakistan. Chair, thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. Distinguished guests, uh, delegates, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. The United Nations General Assembly session, uh, special session on drug is an, is an important opportunity for the assembled nations to reflect on failures and successes of the drug control regime. A straightforward evaluation of the achievements and failures under the existing international drug control regime could show us the real picture. This would have been possible only if the drug control conventions and treaties were implemented 
and their true spirit. We are witnessing mixed approach in implementation of the drug control regime. In some parts of the world, legalized recreational use of narcotics drug is defeating the spirit of the universally accepted international drug control conventions. Branded interpretation of harm reductions and human rights igniting the supply chain have confused the entire drug control regime. However, we on our part stand committed to a balanced approach as envisioned in the political declaration and plan of action 2009. We believe that solution of the world drug, world drug problem lies in correct and honest implementation of these conventions through a balanced approach. Ladies and gentlemen, supply reduction is an essential component of a well-balanced strategic approach to control drug. Demand reduction efforts would not succeed without limiting drugs availability. Supply reduction has both domestic and international dimensions. In Pakistan, domestically, supply reduction includes enforcement of anti-drug laws, eradication of poppy cultivation, control on precursor chemicals, interdiction operations, prosecutions, and asset investigation. Internationally, our supply reduction effort include enhancing international cooperation in the fight against drugs by maintaining liaison with all international partners, intelligence-based coordinated operations, and international control delivery operations are the tools to fight the drugs trafficking internationally. In pursuance to UN Conventions 1988, the government of Pakistan has made necessary legislation in the form of Control of Narcotics Substances Act 1997, which also has the provisions which exclusively deal with international cooperation and mutual legal assistance with the foreign states in relation to the investigation and trial of cases related to illicit drugs. Ladies and gentlemen, strict law enforcement is the key to successful supply reduction operations. Interdiction operations throughout the production, transportation, storage, distribution, concealment, and transit stages impose caution, disrupt drug flow, increase risk to traffickers, drive them to less efficient routes and methods, and prevent significant amounts of drugs from transiting through Pakistan. Interdiction also generates intelligence that can be used against trafficking organization in both international and domestic operations. Despite technological and capacity gaps, our performance both domestically and internationally has been par excellence and widely appreciated. Our counter-drug operations spearheaded by the premier counter-drug agency, Anti-Narcotic Force, with the active participation from the counter-drugs interagency task force, which comprises 18 federal and 14 provincial law enforcement agencies. Ladies and gentlemen, now let me briefly highlight our successes, uh, success stories as a result of aforesaid policy we adopted. We are poppy-free state for the last 16 years. Last year, Pakistan seized 367 tons of illicit drugs, surpassing all previous records. Conviction rate of our leading drug law enforcement agency is almost 90%. 
we froze assets worth millions of dollars belonging to drug traffickers and during the last two years we dismantled 28 international drug trafficking organizations. Ladies and gentlemen, when we talk of human rights of drug traffickers and alternative to incarceration, we must consider for once that the drug traffickers and their accomplices have snatched the rights of 245 million people across the globe to exist. They have caused miseries to millions of their dependents, mostly children and women. They have caused irreparable loss to the social order, legal economies, and rule of law. Of course, the human rights of drug patients are widely respected across the globe. Excellencies, drug business accumulates illegal money, which in most cases is laundered. To curb, to curb the tendency, Pakistan has enacted Anti-Money Laundering Act 2010, which provides basis for legislation and prosecution of the money laundering related cases. Financial monitoring unit has also been established in State Bank of Pakistan. We have made sufficient progress in this regard. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, in the end, I would like to reiterate that whatever we promote and decide in these coming days would be setting the destiny of future generations. I pray for the divine guidance and perfect vision for all of us individually as well as collectively. I thank you for your attention. Check, check. Okay. And now the delegate from the European Union. Thank you very much. Um, the, the supply reduction is a key element of any uh, comprehensive uh, drug policy as far as the EU is concerned. I would like to make a few points. The first one is that, uh, as everybody knows, the EU drug market, the, the drug market is, is a very complex one. It's one of the biggest criminal markets. It's a highly dynamic market where multi-drug trafficking takes place and new technologies plays an important role. The complexities of this uh, market should be understood to develop any proper reaction. Second point, uh, we try to develop a systematic answer, a comprehensive answer to this very complex problem. For that, we have developed what we call the EU policy cycle. The, the current EU policy cycle uh, concentrates on cocaine, heroin, and synthetic drug trafficking. It relies on a number of key principles. One of these key principles is uh, international cooperation on what is a cross-border crime. Another uh, key principle is a full use of the concept of intelligence-led policing. Another uh, fundamental element is also the strong emphasis made on the evaluation of the result achieved so as to be able to adapt our policies. Third key point, in order to implement this uh, complex uh, policy cycle, you need appropriate tool. The first one is a tool to evaluate, analyze, gather information on the problems, and this is the reason why we have set up um, a monitoring center that helps, helps us understanding this complex problem. The second key instrument is Europol, the European Union Agency for Law Enforcement, supports member states in preventing and combating all forms of serious international organized crime and therefore obviously drugs crime. Fourth point, uh, all our activities, we as EU, we want all our activities to take place in a good, 
agreed international framework. And in this regard, we are very happy to see that the UNGAS outcome document outline and extensive these operational recommendations that we think are very useful to tackle supply reduction. We very much welcome this recommendation. We very much welcome the fact that they insist on preventing measures to address vulnerabilities that enable organized crime. We very much welcome the provision for strengthening international cooperation on criminal matters, and we very much welcome the focus on illicit activity of a larger scale and a more serious nature. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Russ Belville Show is proudly sponsored This is by the Russ Belville Show on CannabisRadio.com. Called by NBC News, the Cannabis Chamber of Commerce is the fastest-growing business association and the fastest-growing industry in America. I've been working with the MJBA for years, and I personally invite you to join the MJBA. MJBA also publishes the popular MJ Headline News on Facebook and the MJNewsNetwork.com and Marijuana Channel 1 on YouTube. Visit MJBA.net for more details. Georgia. Hi, this is Willie Nelson. Alcohol prohibition didn't work in the 1920s, and marijuana prohibition isn't working today. It's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. It's the fair thing to do. For more information, contact Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Call toll-free 888-67-NORML or visit their website at norml.org. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be. The Vuber way. Humans have been using cannabis for medicinal purposes for over 5,000 years. Medical science is only beginning to unlock the secrets of the endocannabinoid system and the promise of cannabinoid medicines. Join us now for the latest cannabinoid medicine update. Good day, tokers and toquettes. Radical Russ here at the Museum of Drug Policy, a very interesting temporary three-day museum that's just popped up here on Park Avenue, and I've run into Dr. Sue Sisley. Hello, Dr. Sue. Hi, everybody. Now, we're really excited to talk to you because uh, the rumor has it there's this brand new organization that's going to be kicking ass on drug reform. Tell us all about it. Yes, we're a new nonprofit called Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and we just launched yesterday, and we're so thrilled. We had a terrific teleconference with tons of media outlets talking about the important, you know, basically what we're trying to do is create a sanctuary for physicians to speak publicly about their support of full adult legalization in this country. And we, um, you know, are really thrilled to finally see common sense and and public health prevail over drug war propaganda. 
So this is going beyond doctors calling for medicinal applications of cannabis, but also calling for decriminalization, regulation, legalization as a harm reduction measure? Yeah, absolutely. We actually don't even focus on medical cannabis. That's not part of our mission. We're strictly um, you know, laser-focused on trying to end prohibition nationally, and then ultimately our board hopes to um, expand internationally and work with other countries. You know, We've already gotten tons of... Inquiries from physicians worldwide who've heard about our group who want to participate and see if we can help influence their drug policy also. So we're basically focused squarely on full adult legalization, creating a tax and regulate model in all the states so that um, eventually, you know, ultimately the idea would be to remove physicians as gatekeepers from these medical cannabis programs. I don't think any of us like the idea of being a gatekeeper for a, for a God-given plant that has never been put through the proper drug development process. We want, you know, the plant to be fully decriminalized, not, not um, I'm sorry, not de- fully um, descheduled, not rescheduled. That's important to emphasize that we don't believe in rescheduling at all. We know that it has to be descheduled in order to achieve full legalization, in order to achieve um, the the end of these r- absurd barriers to research. And that's a big part of how I entered this. Um, you know, I, the way the reason I was so enthusiastic about joining this board of directors is because, of course, the we've become experts in the barriers to marijuana research over the last six years with our PTSD study being systematically impeded by the government. I've got firsthand knowledge now on how the government has has been able to stonewall this study because the truth is you cannot study the cannabis plant, the efficacy of the cannabis plant in an atmosphere of prohibition. We've proven that it's impossible to do this and, um, and so most scientists can't afford to be languishing for six years waiting for a study to get underway and so um, we are eager to see um, legalization implemented nationally and to see um, research finally flourish in this country. 20 years ago when we saw the first major breakthrough, California and Arizona passed uh, medical cannabis initiatives. Of course, Arizona's called for a prescription, so it didn't work. But the reaction from the federal government, the Clinton administration, specifically Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel, was to try to shut down doctors' free speech rights, to go after them if they even recommended cannabis. We had to go to the Supreme Court to get that right. So who are on your board of directors, these brave doctors, and how difficult is it to get doctors to to speak out like this? Yeah, well, it's surprising how easily we managed to get 53 physicians, some of the most prominent, highly credentialed physicians in the country to to join not just the board of directors, but this um, growing list of founding members. And um, we're so pleased because these are really mainstream physicians. I mean, one of the problems is that the, the, the the docs who usually speak out about this are often sort of on the fringe. They're often naturopaths and folks. That, but these are mainstream MDs and DOs that are acknowledging that the harms of criminalizing this plan and saying this must end. That we view this as a public health crisis now. The, the racial disparities are sickening and it needs to stop. And I'm really proud of it. And 
I think what you'll see is the quality of the physicians who've taken the lead in this group, people like that you probably know these names, the, the incredible Julie Holland, the author of the Pop Book. Um, we have Donald Abrams on our um, honorary board, Andy Weil on our honorary board, some just terrific people. We have you know, former Surgeon General Jocelyn Elders calling for full legalization. And, um, you know, so, and, and yesterday we even had Wesley Clark um, join. Yes, and the Wesley Clark participated in this national teleconference and said some really powerful things about um, why this is so urgent. So I think um, we're in a great position to um, to be able to bring along a lot of new doctors and create a real sanctuary for physicians to finally feel free to to come out and speak openly about this. Because the truth is, when you talk to when I speak to my physician colleagues privately, whether it's in the doctors' lounges at dinners and things, we always um, talk about um, how unfair, how, how unjust it is that our society continues to criminalize this plan. But to get them to speak on the record about that has been impossible. So now we're going to create a forum where they can come out and talk about this without fear of retribution and reprisal because they're going to be surrounded by other like-minded physicians who are also at the level they are and they're going to um, hopefully find um, the courage to do that. We're um, so anyway, we're, we're really thrilled about We're getting a lot of momentum. We had an incredible piece in the Washington Post last week where they highlighted, you know, they, they went over all the, um, the, the, the mission of the group and the, 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 the vision moving forward. And one of the interesting things was they quoted DuPont in the article who said, um, who's clearly a prohibitionist. And Robert said, DuPont. Yeah, Robert DuPont said, and, and I'm not quoting him uh, properly, but I, he basically he said that um, he thinks that you know ending prohibition is, a, is an incredibly idiotic idea. And that he said that he thinks that um, the criminal justice system is an extremely effective method of treating addicts. <laughs> So it's so helpful when we have um, opponents like that who are making um, you know completely absurd statements like that that we can easily um, challenge publicly. And I think that the public support for our um, work, you know, it's great to be on the side of of common sense and good reasoning. And we feel like we're we're taking the right position here. And people like Robert Dupont are um, completely out of step with the rest of the public. The American Medical Association hasn't even come around on medical cannabis. How are you going to interface with that organization and get them to come around? The good news is we don't need them. I mean, organized medicine has become, um, you know, completely irrelevant. You know, over the last few decades, they've lost, you know, millions of members. You know, there's very few. In most states, organized medicine represents under 20% of the physician community. Um, And so that's... uh, uh, you know that it's great that um, that the, there's most doctors are free thinkers and they don't need to look to they don't need to look to organize medicine to tell them how to view this idea. This the the issue about ending unfair drug po- or re- reforming drug policies that are bad for patients is a common sense issue. It's it's actually embedded in the AMA code of ethics. If you see the the very one of the principles of 
our ethical code is that we will abide by the laws of our nation, but we will also seek to change laws that are detrimental to our patients. And this is a clear um, damage to patients. The harms of criminalization are so obvious, and I think that we have a duty as physicians who, who see the harms of criminalizing this plan every day to see families torn apart, to see lives ruined by being thrown in cages and all. It's, it's so obvious that, that we have a duty to our patients and to our communities to take um, a very public stand on this now and stop um, living in complacency. And be, So I'm, I'm really excited to, to go toe-to-toe with the AMA, and, how, and if they don't come around, certainly we'll be um, eager to debate them at every turn and show them why their thinking is so antiquated and why it's time to, to come together with the rest of society and say that, you know, that's what this was supposed to be about, right? UNGAS was supposed to be about finally um, reevaluating antiquated drug policies and creating reform, but I don't see that happening here, and that's sad. I mean, we're, but we're all here, um, with, with each other at least, creating a groundswell of support, and hopefully we'll be able to stop people along the way and persuade them to reconsider their, you know, old thinking. Let's hope so. Final question. Uh, we ran into you first because you uh, were granted that FDA study rights for PTSD and medical cannabis. Can you give us a quick update on that? Yeah. Um, the good news is that we're getting closer to starting. After six years of being impeded <laughs> by the government, we actually we had a successful DEA inspection a few weeks ago, and um, the DEA Schedule 1 license is the only thing prohibiting us from moving forward. Once we get a Schedule 1 license, I'll be allowed to purchase marijuana study drug from the University of Mississippi. I'll be able to then start screening patients. That I'll be, you know, we'll create an 800 number for veterans to call and be screened so we can enroll patients both at my site in Phoenix and we have a second site at the um, Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. So we're really thrilled. I will be um, announcing some big news later this week after 420 about the study, which I'm excited to update you on. But so far, um, things are, are looking optimistic finally after so many years of delays. Um, that's how the DEA usually has won at this, is they, by by suppressing scientific research, you can't create, you know, there, there's no opportunity to, to look at data that might legitimize cannabis as medicine. So I always felt that was their strategy here. But I'm starting to see that we're breaking through and the DEA is starting to realize the public pressure on them to stop blocking this work. So hopefully later in the week we'll be able to update you on this big announcement. That's great stuff. Dr. Sue Sisley, uh, tell us the name of the organization again and any contact info people need to join. Absolutely. So it's Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. It's the hashtag is Doctors Say Legalize and the website is dfcr.org. dfcr.org. Check it out. Sue, thank you for joining us. This is the Russ Belleville Show on CannabisRadio.com.
Hey everybody, it's Radical Russ here from 420 Radio, inviting you to be like me and get your ink done at Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo, Fort Worth's most female-friendly, clean, sterile, awesome tattoo shop. Thomas and his crew are true artists who can design you a custom piece or use a design you bring in. Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo also offers all styles of tattooing as well as piercings and all-around fun. In the DFW area, stop by Lucky Horseshoe Tattoo and tell them Radical Russ sent you. Trust me, it'll feel awesome. Normal stands for responsible adult cannabis use. If cannabis use is causing problems in your life, consider taking a break or seeking medical assistance. Consider ceasing cannabis use if you have a family history of mental illness. Don't drive or operate heavy machinery while impaired by cannabis use. Cannabis use is not without risks, even though the risks may be far less than those posed by legal drugs. Don't want to spend money on a night out, but don't know what to do other than watching TV or playing video games? Consider playing guitar, bass, banjo, or mandolin. The instrument will give you hours of entertainment with friends with minimal expense. Stop by the Fingerboard Extension, downtown Corvallis at 120 Northwest 2nd Street today, or check out its inventory on the web at fingerboardextension.com. The cannabis community is a diverse set of people from all walks of life. Conservative and liberal, black and white, straight and gay, rich and poor, and everyone in between. Learn more about the people we are freeing from adult cannabis prohibition in our cannabis community chat. I would like to introduce uh, three people who are very important to this space. Uh, Kasia Malinowska from OSF, uh, Alisa Aguilera from Vocal, and Pedro Arenas from Independa, they call Indepas, they Colombia. Thank you. So good evening, I guess, everyone. Um, I feel like I need to transform myself in the next thirty seconds from the person that was sitting at the UN getting slightly frustrated, but playing the game and being polite um, and somewhat diplomatic um, and having a conversation about what we could do to drug policy, uh, to improve lives of people through changing drug policy to this space with real people, real passions, real opinions. Um, so um, let me just breathe and go through that moment of transformation. Um, so we, um, with many of you, have been preparing for the UN General Assembly session for now probably around 18 months. And a lot of people are asking me, uh, I spend a lot of time today talking to journalists, um, and they were asking me, so how upset are you or how disappointed are you with the outcome document that we adopted today um, and with the process that is in place. And I think it will probably surprise, be surprising to a number of you who know me and who have been working with me on this that I'm actually not that upset. I actually think that um, the outcome document that we have in front of us is not ideal, but it certainly, it, there are some wins. One obvious win in the outcome document is the access to pain medicines. Uh, people who have been advocating in the world of palliative care know how difficult it is to uh, obtain opioids for people who are in dramatic, awful pain. 
And this is the win of this ANGAS, and it's not an insignificant win. We now have language of human rights. We got rid of drug-free world, we can do it. We transformed that into drug-free, uh, world-free of drug addiction, which, you know, is a step in the right direction. So I actually come into the meeting with somewhat of a positive outcome, but I really think that the real discussion and the real passion and the real learning is going to happen here. We have been inviting many uh, of our colleagues in the diplomatic community jo to join us. I hope they do. Uh, if you see people with badges which have country names, please say hi to them. Please keep on engaging them. Because really what we are planning for now is for the next three years. Ne next ANGAS 2019, um, let's hope is a moment that is even of a greater transformation. Um, what we wanted to, uh, wanted to articulate here with amazing help um, of uh, Michael and his team uh, was the real lives of people and how they're touched uh, by the current drug policies. From the moms whose kids are disappeared uh, as you walk in, through this amazing, amazing um, art project of a person who spent years in federal prison for drug possession, uh, through awful, dramatic, very sad stories of people who were executed for, uh, for drug possession. So we, we hope that you are inspired by this beautiful art. Uh, I hope you are inspired to keep on talking to each other, to build alliances, to be even better when we come here in three years, to understand that this is about real lives. Um, yeah, and that you really uh, find, use this space as your own. Feel free to invite government officials for meetings with you here. Uh, feel free to sit under a picture of someone who has been executed. Uh, let's make it real. Thank you all very much for being here. Hi, good evening, everybody. My name is Elisa Aguilera, the co-executive director of an amazing organization called Vocal New York. We are, yeah, louder, louder. Uh, we are a grassroots community organizing group. We build power among low-income people impacted by HIV, AIDS, the war on drugs, and mass incarceration. Uh, many of the faces you see here are our members. The video in the back are our members. Um, we are one of the most winning grassroots organizations in the city, um, passing laws to expand access to naloxone, ending the marijuana arrest crusade, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on and on. But what I wanted to share a quick story about today was a story I had a conversation with my grandma, who's 90 years old, and it, we were in San Antonio, Texas, where I grew up. Um, my family uh, immigrated from, you know, immigrated, border crossed us type thing, uh, from Mexico, and, um, and my grandma had this major nerve pain, and she was complaining, and I came into the space, and it was my grandma and my aunt and my grandma's friend from church, and they were talking about how they wanted to try medical marijuana, how my grandma needed to get medical marijuana, and they had no idea how to get it. They said, oh, maybe we could just drive to Colorado and bring it back. I thought that was really a far trip, and, you know, they probably, sh you know, that's kind of illegal still, and probably not the best idea. Then we started going through all my cousins that may have the connect, and who, who, who it could be. And, um, you know, at the end, they were like, oh, I can't believe it's so hard. How are we going to get it? And I was like, oh, my God, I've been waiting my whole career to have this conversation. I say, well, actually, in the early 1900s, when you and your family came here, my grandma um, was born in 1925 in San Antonio, um, 
it was because we brought marijuana to Texas and to the United States that the federal government decided that they wanted to enact marijuana prohibition. And those same laws have evolved so that in New York City, I'm still working on a campaign where 90% of the people who are arrested for low-level marijuana possession in this city, on these streets, are black and Latino New Yorkers, young men in particular. And the way that we don't even remember our own history and the way that really what was criminalized was our culture, right? Um, it was about medicines and, and herbs and ways that we can heal ourselves, ways that we can actually find um, end our, the suffering in our bodies through um, marijuana was criminalized because of who we are. And I think one of the things I've learned in doing this work around drug policy is that it's not just about the drugs, it's about the coercion. Because now that they've found that marijuana is something they can make money off of, they're just going doing it direct and making our bodies illegal. And, and so when we're talking about drug policy and we're in this space, especially in the context of the United States, we need to remember that racial justice is the fight. And drug policy is a ways that are used to oppress black and Latino and communities of color and poor people. And we need to make sure to have a broad look and to remember our history because it's drugs now, but it's going to be something else in the future. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Pedro Arenas. I come from Colombia. I work with the, in the past. In, the, in this institute is an observatory of coca growers and population involved in the cultivation of coca production and poppy production and marijuana production. My role, my task is uh, especially put in the agenda of the rights of the farmer and rural workers, especially. I remember, for example, when I was uh, 12 years old only, I worked picking the coca leaf with my hands in my son. My family was very poor in my community. The poverty was a reality, all time, include today. This situation is similar in all countries with the production of coca and amapola or poppy and marijuana. In this space is a, a good space, it's a good place. Thank you for the team of for organizing this place. Thank you for the support for this place, for this site. In this site is a space too for the farmers and rural workers. For example, in this room is a photography about the rural workers with coca, coca leaf. Many diplomatics in Angas not believe the population involved in this activity is uh, not visible, is uh, uh, people not real. The diplomatics believe only in the industries, in the business, but not in the rights of the people. This place is about the, this situation. Welcome to the museum. Welcome to this place for the following three days. This place is for you. This place is for the memory, especially for the 
thousands of the victims of the war on drugs, the stupid rules about the drugs. This is a rules for chance. All together, it's possible chant this rule. In the future, the prohibition is only for memory. In the future, the prohibition no is real. In the future, is other time for our. Thank you. It was an amazing event there at the Museum of Drug Policy. Melissa Harris Perry doing her show live. John Forte playing for us and all of that. We'll bring you more highlights throughout the rest of the week, but that's all the time we got for this first hour. Thanks for joining us. For everyone here at CanvasRadio.com, from the United Nations, I'm Radical Russ. Until next time, take care of each other, tokers. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it. You take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you try it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. It's time for Toker Talk Radio, the voice of the marijuana nation. What are you people? On dope? Or you can tope. I am here. Uh, or you can talk. I experimented with marijuana and didn't inhale. Or you can talk and talk. Ten federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana. While we talk about toke on Toker Talk Radio. So, by the way, when it comes to pot, you know, if you're 40 years old, you live in a log cabin in Oregon, you got 12 giant pot plants in your backyard, have a ball. Live from beautiful Potland, Oregon at Rolla J Studios. Plus your calls live at 971-533-7111. They're walking on their pants with their cap on backwards, listening to the end of a man, the snoopy, snoopy poop dog. What's to keep somebody from getting all potted up on weed and then getting behind the wheel? Gateway theory doesn't work. It's a reality. Holland, is it real? We're locking up people that take a couple of puffs of marijuana, and, and the, the next thing you know, they got 10 years. And now, here's your host, the guru of ganja graphics, the sultan of sativa statistics, and the worst nightmare of a reefer-mad prohibitionist. A polite, perspicacious, productive pothead with a propensity for PowerPoint. Radical Russ Belleville. Good day, tokers and tokettes, and non-token lovely liberty. Radical Russ still here in the cafeteria of the United Nations building, getting you ready for Toker Talk Radio. And if you were listening yesterday, we played for you part one of a symposium at the Cannabis Science and Policy Summit that was held Sunday and Monday at uh, the City University of New York. Mark Kleiman and Botech and New York University were sponsors of this, and it featured some of us from the pro-marijuana legalization side, but also a few of them from the anti-marijuana legalization side. We'll hear a little bit more from them in this part two of the panel of treating cannabis as a temptation good. 
before, I, I should point out that, that I had to death by chocolate cake once, but it only made me stronger. <laughs> um, so, we now have, we now have an all-star cast of commentators, uh, and we're going to start with David Corbright, the irreplaceable historian of drugs and other things from the University of North Florida. David, take it away. Industrialists, progressives, 
disparate fact of factions in society to unite behind an experimental control system aimed at curbing profiteering, commercialization, and social costs. So what might goth pot look like? Um, here's a sketchy thought experiment from someone who admittedly makes his living looking at the past rather than the future, but by analogy, Gothbot would entail a monopoly on legal production, a ban on all but basic tombstone-style advertising, retail outlets limited in number and location, uh, selling products of regulated purity and potency, companion sales of non-intoxicating food and drink, and staff who worked on salary rather than commission. Off-premise cannabis consumption would be allowed, though the latter would be tied to a rationing proposal that Mark Lyman made nearly a quarter century ago, namely uh, personal consumption licenses with quantity limits. Would there still be diversion, illicit production, and smuggling? Of course there would be. However, the behavior of 19th century narcotic imports suggests that the black market activity would be proportional to the after-tax price. Now, I've done most of my number crunching with respect to opiates, uh, not cannabis. Still, I've noticed that price matters a lot. The optimal strategy would be to start with a relatively low Rothbard tax, let the black market proceed, and then titrate the tax to higher levels something that the alcohol historian Bill Rohrbach of Washington State did with considerable success after repeal in 1933. Another American legalization success story was Dr. Willis Butler's narcotic clinic in operation from 1919 to 1923. Uh, Butler, the parish coroner, gradually detoxified some addicts and provided long-term maintenance for others he kept working prices just high enough to cover his overhead, but low enough to deter back alley peddlers. He maintained order and decorum with the help of local police officials who backed his project. It helped a lot with two former U.S. district attorneys and the mother of the commissioner of public safety were patients at the clinic. Now, what did the uh, golf pubs and the Shreveport Narcotic Clinic have in common? They were non or minimal profit entities with community backing that provided community benefits and had uh, cooperation from local law enforcement. Uh, take the profit out of it, a policy wand often waived against the black market might as easily be waived against socially risky illicit market expansion. For temptation goods, what is sauce for the policy goose is sauce so the good news is that history offers example of drug control experiments that avoided extremes of commercialization and prohibition. The bad news, admittedly, is that these regimes tend to be fragile and imperfect. Um, you've already heard about cross-border effects from Jonathan. Uh, politicians can also be as uh, tempted by revenues as private entrepreneurs. That's why John Burnham thinks that many alcohol control experiments failed after 1933, the desperate need for revenue during prohibition. And we all know that even in good times, or relatively good times, um, state legislators 
can decide to, say, expand the lottery, which we've seen in the last <coughs> century. So finally, uh, this is my last point, uh, I want to ask whether the distinction between hard drugs and lethal risks, with, I'm sorry, hard drugs with lethal risks and temptation goods uh, with more amorphous <coughs> risks, marijuana, gambling, social media, etc., holds up to close inspection. I ask because temptation goods are continuously being hedonically weaponized. They are becoming more numerous, more affordable, more available, more anonymous, and more seductive. You've all heard the argument, it's not your father's marijuana. Well, it's not your father's slot machine, it's not your father's video arcade game, it's not your father's pornography, and it's not your father's phone. Uh, when the Essential Sales interviewed recently 200 teenage girls about social media use, she found that the words addicted and addiction, obsessed and obsessing came up again and again. How else, she writes, can you characterize an activity that occupies from 9 to 11 hours of your day? Good question. Like portable social media, hyperpalatable food, loaded with sugar, salt, and fat, is calculated to maximize brain reward and to encourage heavy habitual consumption. In some aisles of the supermarket, it's hard to know what's not a temptation good. I mean, maybe the aspirin or the tongues that provide derivative profits from overindulgence. And calling these things temptation goods doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't deadly. Obesity and diabetes from hyperpalatable foods can kill you. Texting while driving can kill you and other people. One in five problem gamblers attempts suicide. And subpar performance, this is my last slide, and subpar performance from anything, cannabis included, affects longevity, especially among males. Let's be honest. Ours is an inegalitarian society that punishes degraded performance and lower cognitive ability with lower status and lower income. The stress-mediated connection between lower status and lower income uh, and having a shorter, sicker life uh, is well established. Indeed, one reason suburban parents reacted so strongly against the increase in cannabis use in the late 1970s was that they feared the pot as a symbol and a cause of a déclassé life. With all that meant for the uh, physical and moral well-being of their children. If we combine research in the field of social factors in medicine with Jonathan Hawkins' sobering talk, we should conclude that their fears were not entirely unreasonable. Downward mobility is bad for your health. Thank you. Thank you, David, and, and thanks for for raising the uh, the, the uh, license and quota idea, which I, I am indeed pushing. I should point out there are two versions of the of the personal user license with a quota. One would have the quota set by the state; that was the old Swedish spirit uh, spirits system. Um, the other, that seems to be more consistent with American political culture, would be to have the quota set by the user uh, and resettable. Uh, but with a lag, uh, but enforceable in the meantime. Um, uh, think of it as a way of giving the, the long-term planning self 
uh, if I can invoke the spirit of Tom Schelling, um, a fighting chance uh, against the impulsive self. Um, so, uh, our next uh, commenter uh, will be Rob McCoon uh, of Stanford, who's, who's been in this business almost as long as I have. Um, and it's a great pleasure to welcome. It could happen. 
um, and uh, could get a lot of attention there. So there are a lot of things that could go wrong. And in this slide, <laughs> I show you, <laughs> I show you that the um, while uh, support for uh, legalization among baby boomers has skyrocketed in recent years, it actually plummeted um, between. Uh, 1975 and uh, 1990, uh, it was actually declining. So there's no Hegelian inexorable movement that we only move in one direction. Things can, can change. And that means that this is a delicate time. And it's a delicate time for the industry to really think about how to design legalization to be sustainable. Um, uh, after years of saying uh, uh, a criminal justice approach doesn't work, we need a public health approach. Now it's time to show what we mean by you know, what, a, what does a public health approach look like. So, one of the, so I think in particular we need to think a lot about John's point that a lot of the money that's going to be made is going to be made by the tail end of these extremely heavy sort of wake and bake users who start every day using and used throughout the day. And that, that's, where the, that's where the money's going to be, and that's where the push is going to be. Um, the, uh, uh, John mentioned a, a doubling. There, there are two ways of thinking about doubling. One way I think about a doubling is a doubling of prevalence, the number of people using. And my students are always shocked when I tell them, actually, just a particular example, I had a student recently we were talking about a state legislation. And uh, the students said these state legislators um, probably have never even seen marijuana. And I just kind of smiled and I, I said, well, statistically, uh, they've seen a lot more marijuana than you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they looked at me like, what? So I put up a slide and I showed that um, there were about twice as many marijuana users in 1970 as there are today. Um, so in one sense, uh, we know what a doubling of, of use is like, and this guy didn't fall. We had some pretty bad music. Well, we had the flash. I don't know. It was, it was okay. It was okay. Um, but, uh, um, but there's a very different sense of doubling that John mentioned, and this is one that I don't think was on anybody's radar screen uh, a decade ago. And this is the doubling of, not of how many people are using, but this, this massive growth in daily use, suggesting that, in one sense, my students really are being exposed to a very different world of marijuana than, than the world I uh, was exposed to in college. Um, now, Peter Reuter and I, in our a book that, please buy quickly before it goes any further out of date, because like, every day that passes, it gets just more and more archaic. Um, but, um, but there's one timeless bit of wisdom in the book uh, uh, that, um, that I think holds up, and it's actually you don't have to buy the book because I can summarize the whole book right now for you. <laughs> the, the key to the book is that legalization reduces, almost certainly reduces, average harm per dose of a substance. Legalization almost certainly increases the number of doses that are consumed. The net effect is the product of average harm per dose and the number of doses. So average harm will go down, doses will go up, total harm, that product, could go up or it could go down. It depends on which of the two mechanisms is stronger. Um, 
And that, that's the situation we're in right now, is I think we're going to be looking at a lot more marijuana use, possibly safer marijuana use. Peter and I actually, one thing we said in the book, and I haven't asked Peter if he agrees, but one, one thing we said in the book is the average user under legalization will be a safer user. And the logic was that the new users will be people who wouldn't use under prohibition, so they have enough self-control to obey the law. The one reason I'm not sure that's entirely correct is because I don't think we fully imagine all the ways in which an industry can change a product in ways that might actually be harm-promoting. And um, I'm thinking about edibles and, and this dramatic increase in potency. Yeah, for a long time, uh, Marijuana reformers were skeptical of the government claims that potency was increasing. Uh, and, for, and for good reason, because the government data is based on police activities, police seizures, so it's nothing like a random sample. So I recently um, collected data on uh, uh, 105 contestants from 1991, 1994 to 2011 in the High Times Cannabis Cup. 36 of them list THC potency, and um, the, the mean potency was uh, 19%, well, well above the federal figures. Um, by the way, the, the mean CBD content was 1.4%. Um, and what was striking to me was that uh, the higher the THC, the higher the ranking in the awards. The, the most potent forms of marijuana were most likely to win. And in fact, um, the, the winning recipe is to have a strain with high THC and low CBD. Now, from a harm reduction standpoint, that's a questionable. Um, that's a questionable mix. And um, I'm, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have any high potency um, products. But there should be products available that people can integrate into their daily lives without getting flat out blitzed. And um, it's increasingly difficult for people to do that with high potency marijuana. So, um, if I had my slides, this is that's one thing I definitely can't do with my slides. Uh, is, um, is I was just briefly going to show you. So, um, what I'm working on right now uh, in trying to think through these issues is after years of reading debates about the harms of marijuana and the consequences of potency, I've been trying to do some um, computer modeling in which the point of the modeling is not to forecast. In fact, the point of my modeling is precisely to show the, how vast our ignorance is. And, and what I do in the modeling is I um, make reasonable, I, I use reasonable um, equations that describe dose-response curves and so on, and, and data we do have about consumption, but I vary assumptions about tolerance and titration and try to show just how unforeseeable it is um, what the consequences of continuing to increase potency will have. In some regions of my model, um, it has, it's, we you can increase potency and it's absolutely fine because people titrate their doses and tolerance is high. In other regions of my model, people either can't or don't titrate and the tolerance isn't as great and harms go way up. And I have no idea where in that parameter space we are and you don't either. No 
the comparison is not a fair one in the sense that the proportion of people who ever use cannabis often enough to put themselves at serious risk of dependence is a hell of a lot less than the proportion of people who do the same for alcohol. So he estimated, I think, for the late 1990s, that about a third of people who ever used cannabis used more than 100 times, which is a sort of rule of thumb that people with tobacco use as a, a way of defining people who are at risk of becoming dependent on nicotine. Uh, I was prompted with Michael Litsky, a colleague, to look at some Australian twin data from people who used cannabis in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s in Australia. And we found that only about a quarter of the people in that sample had ever used, had used as frequently as, uh, as often as 100 times. But amongst those who had used 100 times, the proportion who met criteria for dependence was over half. So I think that's something we need to remember in facile comparisons of simple uh, capture rates. I think the other point that's been well made in this talk is that the use, uh, heavy use, or the, the proportion of cannabis use that's accounted for by daily users uh, is, is quite high, and it looks just like alcohol, tobacco, and gambling. But the people who use in moderation, who don't put themselves at risk, account for a very small proportion of total consumption. Uh, Wendy Swift and I did uh, calculations or estimates that back in Australia in the late 1990s and came up with very similar estimates to those that, that Jonathan has uh, put to us uh, today in his paper. I'd echo uh, Rob McCoon's uh, cautions about the potential changes in adverse health effects post legalisation. Uh, for a long time, the argument was contested that there had in fact been an increase in potency. I don't think it's arguable, but there has. And we've seen all sorts of innovations in the legal cannabis market in Colorado around edibles and increased risk, increased reports of years of misadventures in unintentional overdose and accidental poisoning of children. There are also worrisome concerns around the development of concentrates, of butane oil extracts producing THC product or THC contents up to 40% range. It's a bit hard to know what the potential risks of the ready availability of very highly potent products like that might be. So I think we, we do need to be aware of, of potential risks. I was recently involved with the WHO, the World Health Organization, in updating their evaluation of the adverse health effects of uh, cannabis. And most of what we came up with wasn't too surprising. The, the, the large area of surprise was the worrying numbers of reports uh, from France and parts of Europe of serious cardiovascular events in young men who've been very, very heavy cannabis smokers, and it's, it's always been smoking in these particular cases. And I'm talking about strokes uh, and coronary uh, syndromes occurring in otherwise healthy young people. Now, so far, the evidence is largely case control studies. Uh, and increased risks of cardiovascular attendance in emergency room departments. But this could become more common if we allow the ready availability of very high potency products that people continue to smoke. And clearly there's a regulatory opportunity there in, under legalisation that, that might is not available uh, under prohibition, but it's something that we need to look at. I think the evidence around psychosis and very high potent products is also strengthened, particularly if work done in London by Martin of Forty and colleagues. And I think there's emerging evidence from the Global Drug Survey that people who use more potent products report more symptoms of dependence 
and more likely to report emergency room attendances. So I don't think we can dismiss the risks of increased potency as well. They're not going to be an issue because people will titrate their dose. But returning to the alcohol analogy, people who are incomplete titrators of alcohol, people drink spirits, they tend to drink more, drink to higher levels of intoxication than when they drink lower alcohol content beverages like beer. It would be amazing and surprising if the same weren't true of high-potency cannabis products. So again, I think the legalisation regulation really does need to look at uh, potency and how that's regulated. Say something briefly about cannabis cognitive and social performance. I agree with Jonathan that cannabis is a performance degrading drug, and it's fairly clear from epidemiological literature that daily cannabis use in particular amongst young people is associated with early school dropout, and amongst older adults in the New Zealand cohort studies with higher rates of welfare dependence, so lower rates of employment, and generally poorer self-reported quality of life. Now, of course, the argument is, is this a consequence of the cannabis use or is it characteristic of the sort of people who are attracted to heavy daily use? And, of course, advocates of legalisation argue that it's the drug, sorry, it's the user, not the drug. The consequence or the implication of which is that cannabis is most attractive to the least cognitively able members of our community. And I very much reinforce the point that David Courtright made that one of the consequences, or likely consequences, of legalisation is heavy use amongst the most able, uh, the least able people in the community, and its concentration amongst minorities and other groups, uh, which is something that needs to be faced. I'd finish uh, with, a, with a couple of observations about what we know from the experience of alcohol regulation. Again, uh, David Courtright has made some of these points. What we've seen over the last 50 years is the progressive liberalisation of the regulation of alcohol, which is progressively treated as though it was just an ordinary commodity like orange juice or milk, with decreased restrictions on where it's sold and how it can be provided, lower prices, regulatory capture by industry, the interest in maximising heavy use and blaming the drinker for the problems, socialising the losses by getting the taxpayer to pick up the bill of policing and dealing with the social costs of heavy alcohol use. And we have the alcohol industry that prefers self-regulation, emphasising education of users, not regulation, and doing all that it can to oppose taxes. Uh, I think there's a real worry with corporatisation and for-profit legalisation will see exactly the same trajectory uh, with cannabis here in the US. I'll just end with uh, some of the health educational challenges that we face if legalisation does prove to be inevitable, rather inevitable. Uh, that's providing credible health advice to young people. What are we going to be telling young people now that it's no longer the advice just say no? Use in moderation, or what does that mean? Delay using until adulthood, that's sort of a recipe for a go to use for many adolescents who are being hurried to become adults. So I think we'll face a lot of the same sorts of problems around education and post-legalisation that we do now with alcohol. The other worrisome thing I think is the risk of what might be described as post-repeal amnesia about the risks of regular cannabis use. An understandable reaction to the past exaggerations of the risks of cannabis as I see a tendency to deny that there's any downside to use or if there's any pattern of use that can 
uh, produce harm to some users. And the, the risk is, as we saw in the 1940s and 1950s, there was a long period when people doubted that alcohol caused liver cirrhosis or that alcohol, alcohol use could cause psychosis or, in fact, that there was a thing called alcoholism. I think it would be really sad if we ended up replicating that particular history in the way in which we deal with the health consequences, particularly of heavy use of this drug uh, after legalisation. Thanks very much.
I think I said I absolutely believe that there are hundreds of thousands of people who use daily and your daily are completely functional. And then I try through my little story about my kids to say, I fear that there are some on the other side. And I think that the research literature has not yet done a good job of trying to figure out what proportion of adults who use daily and near daily and do not themselves voluntarily identify that there are problems are having problems. How much denial is there? I view that as an important unknown. Yeah, so this is, I'm very interested in this question, and this is part of what this, so this simulation model that I've been working on, it's called SimSimia, and it's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, you know, um, and, but, but one of the things that comes out quite clearly, so if you model a dose response function uh, for uh, harms rising with dose, which is standard in pharmacology, and I, I vary the assumptions over the threshold is in the shape of the, of the dose response function. Under a wide range of conditions, if you just model the harm per gram and multiply out but by the, the fact that the daily users are using a lot more grams, what you find is that a disproportionate amount of the harms will be created by daily users. And, and that's the same as alcohol. So it, it is also true that, that as an actual probability per dose, that I'm, I'm looking at very small probabilities of harm per any given dose. Most daily users of alcohol and cannabis um, have uneventful days where nothing particularly bad goes wrong. But you know, the nature of aggregate risk is that you, you accumulate over doses in people. And so inevitably, the more doses you take, the more your cumulative risk yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd make the point about, I'd agree with what she's just said. It's uh, a proxy, daily use is a proxy for daily use. And certainly there probably are people who do use, you know, have a smoke a joint every night uh, to relax and like people to take a drink. But I think if you look at the, the heavy use, or the daily use, it's the, the wake and bake is, is the dominant sort of that. I'd, I'd make the point about alcohol too, is that the recommended guidelines around alcohol are not to drink daily either is you increase your risk of cirrhosis and cancer from daily, you're better off having a couple of alcohol three days a week. And I think the fact that people find it hard not to drink on any days a week or to smoke cannabis on any days a week is a, a reasonable proxy for problems in controlling this. I just uh, read an interesting review essay on this question of one glass of wine a day being good for you. In addition to the old argument that there's something about people who can only drink one glass of wine that's a marker for good health. But it turns out that many of these studies are statistically flawed insofar as when they look at abstainers and compare them to people who drink one or two or three times a day, what they discover that the abstain is that the abstainer group includes many people who used to drink heavily and then quit and so suffer long-term health consequences, which maybe makes taking just one drink a day look good. So it's not so sure that this one drink a day thing is, is correct. I think, I think both from a research point of view and a policy point of view, a huge unanswered question um, is, is there a cannabis equivalent, or how, how common is the cannabis equivalent of taking a drink? And so most alcohol use in the US, most occasions of use, don't start with the intention of intoxication and are not in fact of intoxication, right? We treat the drinking binge, getting drunk, as a different event 
from using alcohol. Cannabis, we have not made that distinction. I mean, there's certainly reports of people taking a toke to enjoy the meal better or enjoy the music better. Um, but that does not seem to be a common social pattern. There's two questions. How common is that pattern? How many of those daily users are just taking a toke and never really getting back? But second, are there policies that could introduce that as a new social category? to break cannabis away from the getting stoned out of your world war mold. And that seems to be vastly unexplored territory. And in particular, we split one more time. Are there policies that can get college-educated people with high degrees of social control to do that? And are there policies that can get the kinds of disadvantaged folks who end up getting in the most trouble with all sorts of intoxicants to consume in that smarter way? Uh, those are very different questions, and my fear would be that we can create a regime in which people with high self-control can continue to exhibit high self-control, but that we will not necessarily be protecting the people who are not, don't start from a good place. Uh, am I the only person who can remember the 1970s? <laughs> uh, and I may be misremembering them, but uh, I actually do think, I do think there was a time when people um, Of 
envisioned to tip the cannabis market from combustion to vaporization, I think is there. And if tipping all the cannabis consumption from combustion to vaporization is the trigger that's needed to get tobacco consumption or nicotine consumption switched over from combustion to vaporization, the, the stakes there are enormous, 400,000 deaths per year kind of stakes. So how legalization affects patterns of tobacco use, I think, is a really big unknown and wild card in terms of how we look back on this. Um, so question, um, we are increasingly prohibiting tobacco use in public. Um, in that world, what is cannabis use in public going to look like? Who do you want to have? Hmm? Who do you want to have answer that? Uh, anybody who wants to pick it up. <laughs> the, 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 I'm not reading audience questions, so I didn't deliberately do that to you. <laughs> well, I think we, do, we, do, we have a, do we have a practical option for limiting use in public? I think the vape technology, um, I don't know the exact where it started, but whether it started with tobacco and moved, but it seems people have started with marijuana and tobacco, but I, you know, I think it complicates the story because with these vape pens, I think um, you know, the, the public use is less uh, harmful than uh, now, of course, the, you know, the, it, there could be social harms in terms of modeling behavior and so on, but I, I think you know, that's, that's a harm reduction technology that might make the second hand smoke. Yeah, I think that, that, that's key. That to, tobacco combustion second hand smoke creates a health externality. Vaporized consumption of either nicotine or marijuana creates a less tangible externality of normalizing the use. And there is a real question whether or not that will be viewed as a sufficient basis for, for banning the public use. And I think it's sort of sad we already have in Australia, unfortunately. Uh, so one of the few people who thinks that's a crazy policy. But we, uh, uh, I think we, we may well end up... I get the mic closer in your mouth. Sorry. We may well end up with much more restrictive uh, policies towards vaporized tobacco than we do to vaporize. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that is a worry. Because uh, there are WHO and a lot of CDC and others want to regulate vaporized nicotine products in ways that would be much more restrictive than what we to do with cannabis. And, and we should point out, these things are likely to converge. Right? Even today, but maybe more than 10 years, people are going to be mixing up their own, I'll add some THC, I'll add some nicotine, I'll add some blueberry flavoring to the thing I'm going to vape. It's not as if those markets are likely to remain separate post-legalization. They're going to be consumed together. So we have, we have five minutes left, so I have a half hour question to ask. Um, what marketing effort should we expect from the newly legalized industry? And what are the options on the public side for limiting the damage from that? Public, public and, and, and civil society side. So initially the marketing methods are going to be very low tech because the firms are still only in the $10 million a year range. So we're going to go half dozen years with small dollar marketing. After national legalization, I think it will be likely that the firms will be large for such
precisely because the economies of scale come from trying to maintain a national brand presence. And I think it will be unlike old-fashioned alcohol and tobacco being much more uh, social media-based product placement in Hollywood movies, not so much the buy television advertising. And however good we are at controlling television advertising, I think we have less experience trying to be public regulators of what happens on social media. So you're not expecting Bud versus Bud Light in the Super Bowl? <laughs> I don't think that'll be the most important part of the marketing strategy. I think the firms might do that, but I think that the exploiting viral social contagion strategies is probably going to be the bigger part of it. Um, I don't know. I think we're already there. I, I live in California, and I drive past big electronic signs um, advertising marijuana, and um, it's interesting because we used to think we used to look to the Dutch as an example of sort of the outer fringes of what's possible. But actually, we've already leapfrogged past the, the Dutch, and um, there's there's already more promotion in California, more visible promotion than, than you would see in most parts of the Netherlands. And it, you know, it may well be in part partly because the uh, since the Dutch haven't actually legalized, they've got this sort of sword of Damocles hanging over. Um, the retailers that they can be shut down, and you know, they shut down forty percent of their coffee shops. Um, so they, uh, so they have to really tell the line. And, but in California, we haven't even legalized yet. We just have medical marijuana, and I see advertisements everywhere. So, so I, have, I'm trying to write a global history of temptation goods, and I've spent a lot of time in advertising company archives and also in corporate archives, and across the board I see two tendencies. One is a concerted effort at technological enhancement, uh, for example, by adding flavors to the product. Um, and the other is I see a concerted attempt uh, to ramp up the advertising. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Bud versus Bud Light in my lifetime. Uh, again, if this is we don't know the future, but if you ask the question, what is the analogy to the history of other temptation goods, there's a lot of money to be made in them, and people have tried to expand the markets. Now, just just one, one thought for any state regulators who happen to be out there. Um, cannabis is still illegal uh, under the Controlled Substances Act. Um, one creative federalism approach that I have not seen anybody try yet is for a state which is legalized either medical or uh, general adult sale um, to say, uh, as I know Washington State, the, 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 the lawyers from the liquor board told them that they could not regulate advertising under the free speech clause of the Washington State Constitution. Um, and uh, well, as far as I go to tell what nobody has done, is basically say, well, no, we can't actually regulate your advertising, but we do have the phone number of the local DEA office. <laughs> and any outfit that you know, starts putting up billboards, um, we're going to put in a phone call. Uh, now, whether the DEA would be prepared to, to act as the, as the arm of state regulation that way um, is, a, is a question that, that ought to be addressed. Yeah.
This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a scene, you're